The Take on Duchenne podcast is dedicated to educating and raising awareness of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or DMD, a rare and progressive genetic disease affecting muscle function. We bring scientific leaders in the field of DMD together to discuss and share knowledge, insights, and perspectives to support the continuous education and awareness of this disease. This series is brought to you by PTC Therapeutics, a global biopharmaceutical company focused on improving patient lives who are affected by rare diseases like DMD through innovative therapies, earlier diagnosis, and improved standard of care. The information presented in this podcast is intended to be general in nature and is not medical advice. This should not replace or substitute speaking with a healthcare professional. If you are a patient or caregiver, consult your care team with any questions or concerns regarding medical conditions. In one of our previous episodes focusing on the unique journeys and challenges from three women with ties to the world of Duchenne, we had the privilege of speaking with PTC Therapeutics Chief Scientific Officer, Dr. Ellen Welch. The conversation that follows is additional bonus content from our discussion. Dr. Welch, thank you for being here. Can you please explain your role at PTC, your background, and experience in the area of DMD? My role here is to lead a team of researchers who are interested in different approaches to treating rare diseases, often focused on the area of post-transcriptional control, meaning that area where the cell works that targets things that happen after the RNA in the cell is made, meaning that in your cells you have DNA, which is copied into RNA, which is made into protein. And so we sort of work anywhere in the cell where after the step of RNA is produced, that's why our Our name is PTC for post-transcriptional control. I've been working at PTC for over 20 years now. Before that, I had worked in Alan Jacobson's lab at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. That's where I got my PhD in molecular biology, basically studying post-transcriptional control in yeast, which is also a eukaryotic cell, so similar to a human cell, but a single-cell organism. From there, I went to Rutgers University, where PTC, the idea was around, but the company was not. So I started doing some work that would eventually relate to our ongoing work at PTC Therapeutics, namely in the area of studying read-through of nonsense mutations, meaning if a cell has a mutation that prevents a protein from being completely made, you get a, a truncated protein. We were working on studying how how could you trick the cell into making a full-length protein, even when there's a signal telling it not to do that. And so we had worked on some mutations, and then when PTC started, we identified small molecules that would do the same thing as mutations and allow production of full-length proteins. So the read-through experience was what eventually led to our interest in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And that's because early on, we were looking for models, cell models and animal models related to the study of read-through of nonsense codons. And there were several rare disease models available. One was in cystic fibrosis. Another was in a metabolic disorder. But the one that we were interested in at the time was the nonsense mutation model for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and that's known as the MDX mouse. Duchenne is a space that uh, when PTC first entered this arena, this indication space, there were not many companies or there was there was not a lot of awareness of Duchenne. Sure. 
So people are aware of Duchenne, but not in a way that's necessarily meaningful to have a focus on bringing therapies to kids with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So when PTC first got into the space, there were some patient advocacy groups. There were some investigators who were interested, but it really wasn't a truly broad effort that industry could coalesce around. Um, Now, I think if you look at the Duchenne space, there are so many different therapeutic modalities that people are using to try and treat Duchenne. People understand the disease so much better. People understand the diagnostic odyssey that patients go through. And I think there's even more of an awareness now of how the Duchenne community sort of left carriers sort of in the background. People had always talked about carriers. There were often, you know, mothers who had given birth to boys with Duchenne. There always have been manifesting carriers, but it hasn't really been a big focus of the Duchenne world. And I think now as the space is evolving, there's an appreciation for women who are carriers, whether they're manifesting or not, and sort of the tribulations that they have to go through. I think there's more of an appreciation. Also the health issues that they can have. So over the course of the last 20 years, the Duchenne space has really evolved on so many different levels of of understanding diagnosis treatments and just the psychological health and well-being of patients and caregivers and carriers in general. That's fantastic. And what are some ways to help promote awareness uh, within the community? What are some strategies to educate the population of folks who, who may be carriers? Yeah, that's a really great question. So as you can imagine, when patient groups first started out, they were really focused on the boys that had Duchenne and and how to help them cope with their disease and push to find new treatments. But as there was more and more awareness of Duchenne through the unbelievable efforts of patient advocates, then the next step was, okay, we, we were working towards striving to get therapies, but now there's also so many other components that go into living with Duchenne, whether it's the patient, whether it's the caregiver, whether it's siblings, whether it's trying to fundraise. And patient advocates and the National Institutes of Health, they all play a really important role in bringing awareness to patients, caregivers, carriers. A lot of these meetings that are highly attended by patients and their families, these meetings actually have sessions dedicated to living with Duchenne, not only the patient, but also caregivers, carriers. And so the patient groups and and the National Institutes of Health really do a great job of educating people and, and making them aware that there are different subsets of the population that have mutations and have to understand what the mutation means to them now and later? And are there things that they can do to be aware and take care of their health and their family? So those groups really are very important. There are some groups focused strictly on Duchenne, but there's other groups like the Muscular Dystrophy Association that, of course, are focused on other muscular dystrophies where there are also women. 
not just Duchenne, but certainly for Duchenne, there are really specific groups that have really done a terrific job in, in bringing awareness to women carriers and, and manifesting carriers to help them. Thank you. How much do we know about the process of X chromosome inactivation and the formation of an X inactivation specific transcript and controlling which chromosome is shut down? There's been a lot of work on studying X inactivation, and there are proteins and RNAs involved in the process. And there are several well-known labs that, that work on this and are, are trying to work out the process. Because if you could switch the inactivation to the X chromosome that had the, the mutation in dystrophin, I mean, that would be phenomenal if we were able to do that. I don't think we're really there yet, but there's a lot of basic research going on in that field. And like everything, it takes time. But eventually, once you understand the basic science behind it, you can find ways of manipulating the cell system. And I think that will eventually come and could potentially be a therapy one day. But I think that's in the longer term. I think a lot of the therapies people are focusing on right now try to address the muscle strength in people. So corticosteroids have been around for decades as a therapy for people with Duchenne, right? One of the, the most sort of predominant phenotypes that Duchenne patients have, of course, is eventually their inability to walk in their transition to a wheelchair. So steroids have been very effective in delaying the progression into a wheelchair and maintaining the strength of people with Duchenne. Of course, that doesn't treat the underlying cause of the disease. So there are some mutation-specific therapies. Of course, the Duchenne gene is very large. It has 79 exons. And as most people know, for gene therapy, the size, the piece of the DNA that you can insert into the virus in general is a lot smaller than the size of the dystrophin gene. So that presents a complication. But again, over the course of years, there have been a lot of basic science and research studies going on in the background where people have identified smaller versions of dystrophin. They basically can use the beginning of dystrophin and the end and splice and cut out the middle and make a mini or a micro dystrophin. And those are the constructs that are currently being investigated in clinical trials as a way to treat more of the underlying cause of the disease. Of course, there's so many other approaches that people have undertaken to address either cardiovascular aspects of the disease or modifiers that could help if you could overexpress or downregulate as a way to either improve muscle function or calcium homeostasis or cardiovascular health. People are very clever. There are a lot of people doing a lot of research in the area of muscle and Duchenne. And there's just been a lot of understanding of the disease over the last 20, 30, 40 years since the gene was, was identified. The gene was actually identified in the 1980s. So there's been a lot, of, a lot of work over almost half a century trying to understand Duchenne. And a lot of progress has been made. It's, it's been really good for the field. And I think that's great feedback. And we often hear from members of the clinical community the importance of managing family and caregiver expectations. As a scientist, how important is it to manage expectations associated with novel discovery in the lab? Yeah, that's a really great point. Scientists in general are relatively cautious. We get excited about when something in the lab 
happens when we get a positive result or discover something new or enthusiastic. But I think there really is an obligation of people in the science field to not downplay, but to couch experiments in a way that allows patients and physicians and others to understand that something that happens in the research lab it will take 15 years before that observation and maybe a modality that we might be working on could get to a patient. And so we get excited about discoveries that we make or early drugs that we might find, but it takes a lot of effort to optimize things and make sure they're active enough and safe enough in order to get to a patient. So we have to be very careful as as a community not to overstate what we really have, because as I would feel and anyone in the Duchenne community feels, we want to give people hope, but not false hope. And so I think it's really important that people share their work with the Duchenne community, but not overhype it. Because if drug discovery was an easy process, Duchenne would be cured by now. And drug discovery is a long, arduous, complicated process. And the more that, whether it's Duchenne or any other disease, the more that patients and physicians understand the process, it sort of level sets on people's expectations. We want to be hopeful, but we don't want to bring false hope. I think that's great. Uh, And it's an important message to share with the community To you, what is the bedrock of meaningful translational research? That's an interesting question. So there's a couple of components of translational research. One important part of it is the ability to be able to know that you have the means to identify something that you For instance, that you have the ability to identify either a molecule or a gene therapy that you think is based on strong science. There has to be a scientific rationale to develop a therapy for a disease. There also has to be the ability to turn that idea into something, into a meaningful drug. And not only Does that take the scientific know-how? But it really takes the knowledge of understanding what a drug would look like in a patient. Not only its activity, but how much of the drug you have to give, how active it has to be, and how safe it is. And so probably the third leg of that stool is, is the safety component. We don't want to put anything into patients that would cause harm. Admittedly, there's always a risk-benefit associated with a therapy, but I think there has to be a balance in the risk-benefit and make that a clear understanding to patients and to physicians what that risk-benefit is. So I think it's those three things that really have to come together, the scientific understanding, the ability to understand drug development, and the ability to identify something that it, that's safe. And to that end, which of your or PTC's contributions to the community are you most proud of? There's a few. I think 
part of what PTC is very proud of is being a pioneer in the DMD space. PTC was really one of the first companies that took Duchenne on in really a meaningful way, identifying clinical endpoints that would be meaningful in clinical trials, in understanding the natural history of the disease, in really reaching out to the patient community and to the physicians in order to get a coalition together to really focus on bringing therapies to patients. And I think just being a pathfinder in that field, it allowed other people to understand that there could be a path forward in Duchenne. And I think that really did help to bring other companies into this space and and to think about rare neuromuscular diseases. PTC really played an important role there for the community. How have technological advancements in the laboratory from when you began to now changed the approach to treating rare disease? Technology is, is really fascinating. There have been so many technological advances, even in, in the last, I don't know, five years. And I think that's really important because the more technologies we have, the better for rare diseases. And that's because there's not one modality that will work for every disease. For instance, one of the more recent breakthroughs has been gene therapy. Now, you could argue that gene therapy has been around for a long time, but I think it's really just the real utility of gene therapy. There's been more understanding about viruses and how to use them for therapy in the last probably decade. And I think that there's also been an effort across biotech, biopharma, now that we understand gene therapy more, to use gene therapy as a delivery tool to treat disease. I also think that even if you think of therapeutic modalities that have been around for a long time, like small molecules, everyone thinks about taking a pill when they think about treating a disease. But I think what's evolved in that universe is the underlying science and how we can use the underlying science and identify small molecules that target certain mechanisms in the cell as a way to treat diseases. So it's that combination, not only of the modality, but of the basic understanding of what we want to correct. And there's been a lot of technology that's helped us to understand sort of the underlying causes of some of these diseases. Like even in the lab, cryoelectron microscopy is really in the past five or seven years has really evolved into such a helpful tool. And it gives us a real look at some of the real basic parts of a cell and how we can use that information to identify new targets for either molecules or antisense oligos or things like that in order to bring new and improved therapies to patients. So it's, it's very exciting and technology really plays a phenomenal role even in delivery of therapeutics, using MRI to direct where in the brain you potentially want to deliver a modality. I mean, it's, it's really profound what technology has helped us to achieve over you know, the last several decades. It's been very exciting. And once a carrier is identified, what ways could the care community evolve to help support that person? I think right now, since the majority of manifesting carriers, they 
basically manifests later in life, 40s, 50s. I think it's more recognized now that there is the potential that they'll manifest um, for those. So I, I think physicians have a better understanding now that not only does the boy need care, but the mother should also be evaluated and be monitored. So I think that's important. For a carrier who doesn't manifest, I think it's important for them to understand that they are a carrier, uh, perhaps not for health if they're not manifesting, but certainly just for understanding the probability of passing the disease along to their children. I think that awareness is always just important. And then for those families that have a girl with a spontaneous mutation in dystrophin and that girl manifests early, that's, that is so rare. But again, it's about awareness. If, if physicians in the Duchenne space hear about these unusual cases, it helps them to diagnose. And I think the diagnosis is, is so important. Duchenne takes a long time to diagnose, e even today. So that's another place where newborn screening would be really great. The earlier you can treat, most likely the better, which is true for most rare diseases. Taking action is important, but you can't do that without the information, right. without the awareness. Yeah. Information is power. In what way has the pandemic influenced how companies pursue drug development? Or has it? That's an interesting question. I know at PTC, it didn't change. The pandemic didn't affect our process of ultimately getting drugs. What it did do was change how we work in the lab a little bit. During the pandemic, the scientists at PTC, their job is to work in the lab. And they wanted to work in the lab. This isn't something that we asked them to do against their will. We had shut down the lab for a couple of weeks and they couldn't wait to get back in and do their job to identify drugs. It's ingrained in, in us to do this. And so the pandemic didn't, it made our job harder, but I think in some aspects it changed it for the better because a scientist now can go into the lab and do an experiment and also be able to participate in the meeting and present their data at the same time. So I think in a way, the pandemic showed us a different way of working a little bit. But in the overall picture, in what we do to identify a drug, the pandemic, it didn't really change anything. What are the most significant challenges facing those who study Duchenne? Some of the most significant challenges to those studying Duchenne are being able to, of course, bring a therapy to patients. But what does that mean? So the final step in bringing something to a patient, of course, is the clinical trial. Do you have the right endpoints? Do you understand how the disease progresses? Does everyone with Duchenne have the same progression? Are some of the ways that Duchenne patients progress, is it changed because they have modifier genes? Will all patients respond the same to a therapy? There's so many unknowns. And so these complications arise in a disease like Duchenne of understanding everything you need to know because it's a rare disease population. So one of the biggest challenges is the population size and being able to study people. And we sort of alluded to that with the, the manifesting carriers. There just aren't that many to study. Another challenge is there's always new 
basic understanding of how muscles work or your body works and understanding that to identify and make the best drug possible for a patient is really important and it's extremely challenging. There's just so many steps that someone has to go through from starting from an idea to I think, oh, I think this is, is a, a reasonable approach to treat someone to actually getting to the point where you can get it approved. So every step along the way is is critical and it's challenging. So anybody who wants to be in any rare disease space really has to stay in the game. As a drug developer, you have to be ready for it. But I know that all the folks at PTC, they're seasoned drug developers now and they're up for the challenge. And whether it's Duchenne or other neuromuscular diseases, there are so many folks out there that need a therapy. What pearls of wisdom would you be eager to share from your time in this space with the community? Pearls of wisdom. Mm, so many pearls. <laughs> I have a beaded necklace. Um, I think one of the most important things that I could share as a drug developer is to really stay in the game. I think it's easy to kill a drug. There's really no penalty to saying, oh, I don't think that drug is a, will ever make it. It's harder to say, let me come up with another way to improve the drug or fix the problem that we're having. I think that's true in Duchenne. I think it's true in a lot of the rare disease space that a lot of what we do is that we take an un, untraveled path and you have to embrace the fact that there are a lot of unknowns and try and maneuver the path so you can get to where you really want to go. And, and that holds true on the research side, on the clinical side, on the regulatory side. There's just so many unknowns in this space that you really just have to embrace the unknown and find a, a workaround. That's probably the advice that I would give to most people. And the advice that someone once gave me was, they said to me, no, one's, no one said it would be easy. And that's so true. It's not easy, but that's the challenge. And I, I think if you're up for that sort of challenge, then drug discovery and development is the place to be. It's really exciting and it's so meaningful. That's great. Thank you, Ellen. Yeah, sure. Of course. It was really my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, I encourage you to listen to our recent Take on Duchenne North America podcast episode, Spotlighting Women in Duchenne where we first heard from Dr. Welch and two other remarkable women with ties to Duchenne. Make sure you join us for the next episode. You can subscribe to the podcast series at ptcbio.com or your favorite podcast channel.